Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome. Uh, thanks to Ruminations crew for another great show highlighting issues around homelessness and rooming houses. Hi, I'm Bill, and this is a Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio. My guests today are Brad and Dean, and they're members of Alcoholics Anonymous, and they're going to be sharing how AA has helped them to recover from alcoholism. So, welcome, Brad and Dean. Thanks, Bill. Hi, Bill. What we usually do is have a chat about what life's like uh, and how, how you actually got to um, AA and what that what that means to you today. So we'll start with you, Brad. So how long have you been in AA? Uh, I've been in AA for close to six years now. Okay. What's it like now compared to what it was like before you got into AA? Yeah, what it's like now is uh, a totally different st- uh, picture to, to what it was like back then. Um, you know, today I, uh, I sit here uh, free and uh, with options, you know, I uh, I now choose uh, what I do, when I do it, and, and who I do it with. To be honest with you, uh, whereas back then, um, you know, the drink really controlled uh, what I did. You know, I was either planning a drink, or having a drink, or getting over a drink, and um, you know that really dictated uh, what my days and weeks looked like, and and obviously evenings. Yeah, okay. Um, so what brought you into AA? Yeah, uh, I'd had enough. Um, I was over the trouble and uh, I couldn't keep going down the path I was going. Um, and to be brutally honest, it was uh, my last drink was the straw that broke the camel's back with, with my wife. Um, she'd had enough and... Uh, sort of ordered me to, to leave uh, in polite terms, uh, of which time I sort of you know, said, you know, let's you know, cool your jets and try and work this out. Um, but we didn't. And uh, that's, when I, uh, that's when I reached out. And that's when I reached out seeking help. And, uh, and I was introduced to the rooms of AA. And, um, and I haven't had a drink since. Right. Okay. Uh, so, what about you, Dean? In terms of drinking, yeah, my, I had my last drink at twenty-eight. I'm, I'm now forty-six. Uh, it was a series of of rock bottoms for me. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd I'd been a bender drinker since my first drinker at the age of fourteen, like a blackout drinker, and um, towards the end, it had just got worse and worse. It had been progressive. Um, other drugs were part of the story, but it was. Yeah, the drinking that, that I started with and that I finished with and it was just a, a real sensation that there was, you know, there was nothing good if I was continuing down the path that I was going and, uh, you know, I was exposed to Alcoholics Anonymous on the Gold Coast in 2000, the year 2000 and, um, you know, I knew there was something worthwhile there, I knew there was something positive there. I couldn't get it for a year and I had many, many more what we call slips or relapses and, and it got worse and, you know, distressed parents and distressed family and friends and and you know distressed me really and uh and in the end it was just a you know i'd been to a dance party i'd tried to use drugs and uh, you know 
without drinking and then you can't swap one for the other and in the end I started I picked up a drink after smoking some some marijuana and um another bender another binge another ho- a motel room in, in stall not far from from where I was based in Horsham at my parents and a good friend came and picked me up I'll never forget that and I went to a meeting that night and in 2001 March the 27th of 2001 and haven't had a drink or a drug since and very grateful today for that okay um so did you fit in when you first came to Alcoholics Anonymous yeah yeah I mean I I, I think the mind will always tell you that you to look for the differences you know rather than the similarities and over time we get told to look for the similarities not the differences yeah. and and I did that and uh and I my I walked in and my ego and my head said nah they're different and you know just go back go back to the gym and get physically fitter and get a job and get some money and all that stuff and and I tried that, and it was just didn't work. Everything that I've heard in Alcoholics Anonymous over time has has, has been true. So mm. yeah, okay. So what's life like now? Yeah, life now is really good. I mean, I you know working my work life is 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 I work in areas that I'm much more suited to. I teach yoga that has that spiritual alignment. I feel it's similar to AA. Uh, I teach in rehabs. Uh, I work with people, so it's not my full-time role, but I, and I work in fitness, and um, I have variety to my working life. I have satisfaction in my working life. I'm financially independent, whereas I was the opposite of that in active addiction and alcoholism. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't save and I couldn't do anything in terms of my life or travel. And uh, I have really good friendships and relationships today. I have a sense of connection. I have a sense of a higher power as well. Um, which is just a, it's such a difference for my life now from what it was back then. It's great. Yeah. yeah. So, what sort of people have you got in your life today compared with what you used to? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, Brad's a good friend of mine. I have a lot of, you know, I have a lot of strong, strong male role models. I, I didn't have that growing up, and that's that's no, you know, that's not the fault of of my immediate family. That's just the way that sometimes the the Western setup is, you know, and. Um, you know the issues that my family and my father experienced and um so now i have really strong men also have strong women i have real deeper i've just been away on a men's weekend with 24 guys that are in aa and talking about deeper things and there was no superficiality there's certainly no drinking um just real soulful deeper intimate connections which i didn't think i was oh, well i wasn't capable of when i first got sober but um people that i can depend upon and call upon in, in times you still have bad things happen even when you're sober and um, people that I can really depend on, on and hopefully I can be one of those people too which I never I would never think of anyone but myself prior to coming into recovery yep yeah so how long in AA before you felt y- you got it oh sometimes I think I'm still <laughs> getting it uh I think when I started when I did the process when I did the steps I mean I was two or three years in and I didn't do the 12 it is a 12-step program and that's been the thing that's given me real freedom. But I think it took me two or three years and I would just go for a meeting and, and not drink a day at a time. And then after that, I started to feel really connected, you know, to, to others going through it. And But, you know, even prior to that, I, I, I just felt connected with friends and other people that had been through it. And then, But once I did the steps and started to be right in the middle of it, um, I felt really at home and I still do today. Yeah. So can you explain a dry drunk? Yeah, dry drunk for me was, and, and that oh, I was a dry drunk. I was physically sober, but I hadn't. I still had all, I think, what we call isms. So I was what we would call restless, irritable, and discontent. And that's probably recovery language. It just meant I wasn't comfortable in reality. I would, I would, I would go to work, 
you know, I, I worked in a people industry. I was working as a personal trainer and, um, you know, I, I wasn't the most attractive person, you know, to be around in, in many senses as, I, you know, I was uh, easy to um, anger. I was oversensitive. Um, I just, yeah, just restless all the time and, and until I and, – and it's not a great place to be in and, and clearly it's a place in – for me that when I drank or drugged, that's what gave me relief and so – I had to treat that restlessness and irritability to to get sober and then to be happy, which I am today. So yeah, yeah, yeah that's good. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Uh, so, Brad, coming into AA, how long did it take you to feel comfortable? Yeah, it, um, when I well, f- firstly, when I did come into AA, it wasn't somewhere that I really wanted to be. Yeah. Um, it wasn't somewhere where that I think I needed to be. I had a lot of discomfort, a lot of embarrassment, a lot of shame about being in AA. But what was suggested to me was um, uh, was to go out there and, and try and do 90 meetings in 90 days and, and everything else will sort of fall into place. Uh, so I went out there, uh, I did the 90 meetings in 90 days. So over that sort of three-month uh, three period, uh, I felt that at the start of that, I was sort of sitting in my car, last one to win, you know, sort of rush into the room, take a seat out the back, rush back out to the car. Yeah. And that was sort of, that was my, that was the plan and that was what I did for the first, you know, month or two. Um, and then it slowly started to, I started to warm up to it. Um, as Dean said, I started to listen to a lot of like-minded people talk about like-minded issues and situations mm. around, um around that mental obsession that physical craving that once they had the you know the first drink that they couldn't stop uh and i started hearing all those similarities uh there were a lot of differences there that you know i wasn't a daily drinker um so i couldn't sort of identify with those or um you know i hadn't had or done hard time um you know, i came from a sort of privileged upbringing and and sort of wasn't really um, I wasn't really need. I wasn't supposed to be there, to be yeah, honest with you. Right. So, yeah. so I often say that you know, um, AA got me as opposed to, to me getting AA. So that first three months of, of doing those meetings and getting around to as many meetings as I could gave me the understanding that, hey, you know, and it educated me that I do suffer from the disease of alcoholism. And I have that mental craving and that physical allergy that once I start, that I can't stop. So learning about it um, really sort of made me feel more comfortable. And I then had acceptance around that powerlessness over alcohol. Uh, and so then I started, yeah, I started to, to warm to the rooms. I started to warm towards the people in the rooms. Um, and I started to feel more comfortable. I started to hang around with you know one person grew into two people and next minute I've you know I've got a sponsor and next minute we're we're going through the big book and and the steps are jumping out and we're doing the the steps so for me it was very much um I'm going to say slowly slowly catch the monkey you know I I sort of didn't jump into it head first um it was a real soft approach I needed to be cuddled and handheld and Brad, it's going to be okay. Yeah. You know, relax uh, sort of yeah. thing. It's not all bad. Yeah. So how did you find out about AA? Yeah, so I um, I've, I, 
I reached out. I reached out to a, a family member um, who has been in the program for um, four or five years prior, um, and it was on the back of uh, of a last drink, my last drink that I had, uh, where I'd sort of shamed the family and uh, and. Uh, you know, we spoke about the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, that was the straw, and and uh, you know, I reached out to to my younger brother um, and uh, and asked for help, and uh, and that was it. He um, again, you know, he he slowly introduced me to the rooms, took me to a meeting, um, and then suggested to me uh, to do the meetings in ninety meetings in ninety days, and and sure enough, you know, to his credit, yeah, everything fell into place. Okay. Um, so looking at, at your experience of people helping you in AA, mm. how do you help others in AA? Yeah, uh, I guess there's, uh, there's two ways to look at it. There's, uh, there's step 12, uh, carrying that message to the still suffering alcoholic. And, um, so there's that component. And, and I think as Dean mentioned earlier, the, you know, the sponsorship sponsee relationship that you know, is vital to our program and, and not only um, to the longevity of the program, but is also you know, preserving our own sobriety and, and helping yep. the newcomer uh, find sobriety. But it's also outside the rooms. Um, it's also you know, being of service, you know, being uh, I'm a father. Uh, so um, you know, I'm a father, I'm a parent, I'm a, I'm a brother, and uh, you know, I've got an ex-partner. So it's uh, it's... It's being of service outside of the rooms, just as as much as inside, and and that's what's uh, you know that's what's important to me. You know that's why you know that's the sort of real driving force for me and my sobriety is um, is to be the best possible person I can be, both in the rooms and outside the rooms. Yep. Okay. Thank you. Uh, well, listen, we might take a quick break. Uh, you're listening to the Living Free Show on three CR eight fifty five kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. Uh, We've got over 75 episodes of the show available as podcasts on our website, which is 3cr.org.au forward slash living free. So you can check them out there. You can also contact us via 3CR on 03 9419 or email us at 3 at gmail.com and we're also on Twitter as 3CRLivingFree. Uh, we usually do a community service announcement, and today we've got one from the Kevin Hines Grow uh, Autumn Gardening Fair. Kevin Hines Gardening and nature-based programs to people of all ages and all abilities. Our programs provide great opportunities for positive personal development and well-being. The Kevin Hines Grow Autumn Fair and Open Day is on Saturday the 30th of March, 9am to 3pm at 39 Weatherby Road, Doncaster. Come along and stock up on plants at our community nursery or learn more about our programs. See you there. Kevin Hines Grow is a 3CR supporter. Okay, this is Living Free Show and I'm talking with Brad and Dean about Alcoholics Anonymous and how that helps um, helps helps living without drinking. <laughs> Um, so I thought I'd just go back and look at um, origins because our origins are a pretty big part of our lives and they have quite an influence on, on what we do. Um, but everybody reacts differently to different stimuli. So, um, Brad, 
what was life like growing up for you? Uh, fun. Uh, that's the first word that came to my mind. Uh, I grew up in a quite a big house. We, uh, you know, we shared and, and did a lot of fun things. We were quite a social active family. It was a heavily male-dominated family, so there was a lot of sport, there was a lot of football, a lot of basketball, a lot of, yeah, a lot of everything. Um, so my early childhood was, was very much orientated around sport, as, as to my siblings, um, and then it, it sort of it grew from there. Uh, we grew up in the sort of uh, leafy neighbourhoods of Melbourne, um, we went to... We had sort of, I guess, we'll call it a privileged upbringing. Sort of never went without, and um, yeah, we, we were, we were, yeah, we were, we were happy. the The drinking side of things in in my family was was quite uh, prevalent. We um, we would uh, yeah we'd we'd socialise uh, together. Um, our sort of family industry business was in it was in an industry that was was heavily uh uh involved in sort of yeah gambling and 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 drinking so um so yeah it was uh yeah we we all drank together and we all uh, we all socialized together um and not only just my immediate family but my extended family um you know we're to put it nicely tarred with the same brush uh so um so our drinking or, or my particular my drinking didn't seem to be too strange or too different to the, to those around me because I was often around you know family members but it wasn't until I sort of went out and you know started working and and started drinking with colleagues and friends and and peers um was when I noticed that I drank differently right. you know I drank for the effect um and that I could uh, I could go out and have a few drinks with mates, but and, and they could simply walk out and, and go home, whereas for some reason I couldn't. Uh, yeah, I had to. I couldn't leave until I'd had enough. Um, inevitably, that enough was was too much. So yeah, and it, and it sort of just progressed there. Uh, but my yeah my upbringing, um, I, I I grew up in a, in a household that uh, that liked to drink. Yeah. And um, still like to drink. Yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, it, it uh, sort of it's no surprises that I'm, I find myself in the rooms of AA. Yeah. You know, I you know they often talk about the family disease, and um, yeah, and I, I strongly believe that uh, yeah, it's been passed down through generations, and and you know, finally landed with me, and hopefully it finishes with me, and I've yeah. broken that mold before. Yeah. Yeah. Break the cycle. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, was your dad an alcoholic? Was his, uh, was his drinking a problem to you? Yes. Yeah. 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 It it had more of a negative impact on my life um, than I would say a positive, and and I guess that's thinking. That's sort of talking without thinking. Um, yeah. He, uh, you know, on one hand, uh, you know, he was he was a great provider. Um, he, as I said earlier, we you know we went with with. Without nothing, we had all the resources and and means to uh, to be looked after and looked after well. Yep. Um, but then on the other hand, uh, you know his his job sort of did take him away uh, from being present, and then you know, throw in 
I guess, coupled with uh, with drinking. Um, yeah, he was very much an absent father. Yeah. So alcoholism is a very destructive thing on a family. So what held mm. it all together? Uh, I'd say my mum. Yeah, I'd say uh, mum was the, the glue of the family. Uh, she she wasn't a drinker. Um, she was... Uh, she was very selfless. You know, she she would uh, she would always put others first before herself. Uh, you know, she's the she was the sort of person. You know, last one to bed, first one up. Um, the house was sort of always spotless, and the ironing was always folded, and yep. you know, the meals were always on the table. Yeah. Um, and she was, uh, yeah, she was the soft pair of ears. She was the soft landing for all of us. Um, and uh, yeah. I, I'll give full credit to her to be uh, to um, to holding the family together. Okay. Um, so, how old were you when you first had your first drink? Yeah, I I was uh, I was around fourteen, fifteen, um, and I remember it well. And I must say that I've only just recently remembered this first drink, um, and I don't know why. But uh, yeah, I've. Uh, I've got some. I've got some older brothers, so and they're sort of six, seven years older. So it was. You know, it was quite early. If I'm sitting here, you know, 14 years of age, you know, I've got 18, I've got 19, 20-year-old brothers there that are mm. well and truly into it. So um, I had there was that appeal. Yep. Um, so my first drink was walking around my local primary school that I attended with another mate of mine, um, drinking cans of VB that were sitting out of, you know, the I don't know if they're old or still there, but the round plastic rings. Okay, yeah. And I remember standing, he and I having one together, one each, um, and then him wanting to sort of go off and join others and what have you, and and I, I was chasing him. Yeah, I wanted another one. I wanted that second one straight away. Um, and that is the pattern of my drinking right up until six years ago. You know, that... I, that first one, once I had that first one, I needed the second one and I needed the third one. Yeah, you know, I'd often say that I'd have a drink before going out for a drink. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't until the such it wasn't until that third one that I could sort of settle, relax, and and join in a social conversation. Yeah. You know, that that mind was ticking over and the race the head was racing. Yeah. So, did you were you anxious, anxious as a kid? Uh Look, I wouldn't say I was anxious. Um, I I did feel um, a little fish out of water because I, I I wasn't an academic. I was more the the pendulum was more on the sports side with me, and I was more interested in doing yeah, yeah than than the, you know reading and writing and what have you. So I was always uh, I always struggled in that area. So I felt that I I needed to. I needed to sort of strengthen our other areas, and I needed to be more the, you know, the line, the center of the center of attention in the limelight. Yep. Um, yeah, a bit of a show off, ego. Uh, yeah, full of that. Um, so that's probably the you know the driving behind it. Yep. Okay. Um, so Dean, how, how about you? Growing up, family. Uh, yeah, I grew up in, in country Victoria. I grew up in Horsham, and uh, and I was listening to Brad. My family didn't mix as readily; uh, a little bit uh, uh, isolated. They had family family members and family gatherings, but not a great deal of of friends, etc. Um, my father was a, he was a good provider. My father had a really 
very very tough upbringing when I when I look at his family history incredibly difficult a lot of stuff and he did his best he could with the tools that he had and my mum yeah my mum had to go back to work as a nurse and it was you know night shifts and my dad had a breakdown when I was very young and so I think that probably disturbed the family dynamic a lot um but you know my earliest memories it was it was it was happy I mean Horsham it's a very small town a lot of sport um and a lot of drinking like like anywhere in Australia but I think country towns it's just sport and drinking really and they're to be honest, there wasn't much more else to do in Horsham, and um, so yeah, I mean, I, I I grew up, had a sister and a brother, played sport, enjoyed it. Uh, there was always a sense of a little bit of boredom, and uh, and then when I discovered alcohol, you know, I, I loved it. It really lit me up. Mm. Okay, um, so what about your family? Anybody else in your family dysfunctional, um, or, are you, or are you the? Am I the sheep? <laughs> no, we're a. We're a good Aussie Western family. I think everyone's got problems. Um, yeah, my, you know, and I, I, I don't speak for my brother or my sister, but um, you know, they have their own. Like all of us, have their own things that are, you know, have uh, you know affect them. I think you know we had our, our bringing our parents did the best they could, but there there was some shortcomings. There was some deficiencies, like there always is. And uh, you know, for me, probably the drink gave me that. That was my solution. And. Perhaps my brother and my sister, without speculating, have got a different solution, you know, a different way of coping yeah. with whatever, yeah. uh, you know, impacted on them through that time. And um, and, I, and I probably see that from afar, but it, again, it's not really my role to point that out. It can only be a sort yeah. of example of what I've found through through AA and 12 Steps, hopefully. So, okay. Mm. Uh, so you said earlier that you started drinking around 14. So how did that happen? Yeah, it was my grandfather's 60th. I, I still remember it. Hopefully, you know, it'll be an, my 18th sober anniversary next week. Um, but, uh, yeah, so it would have been his 60th. It would have been I was 14. So it would have been in, in 86 or something like that. I was born in 72 and I just had a drink. It was I was able to, you know, and I was sort of it was at our place in, in Horsham and remember having the drink and just this this flood coming over me this warmth and this this relief you know and um so able to talk and i remember there was a girl that i liked and i had no you know no ability to chat and i was chatting away and doing all the things that you couldn't do you know in norm normality but with the drink it was like you're a superman you know you could do anything and uh i felt that freedom and um you know, a bit of the life of the party and then i um i remember being sick, throwing up, and being put to bed, and um, the next morning waking up thinking, "When can I do that again?" You know, and, <laughs> and you might as well just press repeat for that for the next fourteen years. So I got sober really, and you throw some drugs in and some different circumstances and dance parties, etc. And that was a bit my scene when I moved to Melbourne. And um, but it was always the drink and, and that seeking oblivion was always part of it for me. And okay, I, yeah, that was it. Yeah. yeah. So, what did your mum think of you of your drinking? My mum was uh, my mum was really concerned. I, 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 you know, I think back now, and I think that there was some real maternal part of her that knew that this was really bad for me. And in hindsight, she was correct. You know, there maybe I believe in that. I said believe in a higher power. I believe that she was in tune with that. She came from a, you know, like any Aussie, Irish, Scottish, English family. There was lots of alcoholism. Her father's a was a controlled alcoholic. I suppose you would call it my grandfather and um she was just concerned and i remember being so angry about me drinking and um but i just didn't really you know i'm a teenager for a start and alcoholic as a second so i was the epitome of self-centeredness and i I didn't really i had no concern about anyone else's feelings about it It was just about how it made me feel and it made me feel good and i chased it and 
but she was yeah she was super concerned with it and was and but on the the flip side she was so relieved when i got she was such a believer in alcoholics anonymous and al-anon and and how they rallied around her and and the kindness that they gave and it was it was a joy she passed away when i was 14 years sober so the same length of sobriety i was sober she she saw me drink for 14 years she saw me sober for 14 years and i can categorically tell you she loved it the last 14 yeah, a lot. yeah yeah i'm sure so so what's what part did sort of your anxiety play in your need to drink yeah i mean i um brad spoke my sponsor you know i've had two major sponsors over the 18 years and i remember what i call my middle sponsor talking about the drip feed anxiety for the the alcoholic or the addict and it really resonates with me i, I just feel that it's always been there i remember as a kid I remember being concerned when I had nothing to worry about. Like I always wanted to have, I always remember having to be concerned about something. And that was yep. as a ten-year-old. I'm not sure that was the most freeing existence going around. <laughs> and um, but so when I had a drink, I believe it just it's it shuts that down, you know. And I just it removes that anxiety or the 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 busyness in the mind, that depressant or whatever I took would would quiet in the mind, and I could kind of. You know, in some ways, I suppose have some normality, but the price that I paid was 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 very stark as well. But it was, yeah, it was definitely that that anxiety was was there, and I'd mask it in many different ways. But the alcohol and the drugs were the the quickest way, I think, to relieve me of it. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, back to you, Brad. Um, so, growing up in in an alcoholic or a family that where alcohol was consumed, a lot of alcohol was consumed. Mm. What was the, I guess, the feeling in the home? You know, was there any tension? You know, often there's a lot of control in an alcoholic family. So was was yours a controlled family or was it relaxed? Yeah, I won't say I wouldn't say it was relaxed. Um, I sort of remember it being, you know, quite a lot on edge. Uh, yeah, my father was. Uh, uh, was an alcoholic and, and again not a not a daily drinker but uh, like me a, a binge drinker and he had his certain days during the week uh, that he'd be out for lunch um, a Monday and a Thursday and uh, and so they you know coming home and uh, and if dad wasn't home already after school uh, walking in at four o'clock yeah there was yeah there was some discomfort not knowing what to expect not knowing when he'd he'd walk in and and in what sort of mood he'd walk in, um, or often, uh, you know, often he'd, he wouldn't he wouldn't make it outside of the, out of the car, you know, fall asleep in the car, or get up in the lounge room and, and fall asleep there, um, which I must admit, you know, was you know, it was a relief, preferable, <laughs> Pref- yeah, exactly right, um, and so yeah, there was yeah there was always that uh, that uncertainty, um, so and and. And and having said that, you know, on, on, you've got that on one side, whereas on the other side, you know, you've got mum who's, uh, you know, um, you know, the reliable, uh, trustworthy, honest, humble woman um, that you know you you could seek relief in, or you, um, so yeah, it was, uh, yeah, there was always those you know, the question marks of what our night and afternoon and days looked like, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, and so drinking early on, so did your friends drink and, and how did you find friends that drank? You seek them, they'll yeah. find you. Yeah. Uh, that's, uh, and, you know, look, I've got, a, I've got a good strong network of friends um, that I've had since kindergarten. Um, 
You know, I uh, that and, and th- they're what we call normies. You know, they can go out and have a few drinks and what have you, um, and you sort of find yourself gravitate to to like minded people on the drinking side of things. So, if I was to have a drink with them, I'd know that they're you know the sort of moderate drinkers. Um, but so I'd always have a plan B. Uh, yep. Up my sleeve, and I'd you know where I'd be going next, next and yeah. uh, and and probably a plan C. Um, so working with colleagues and and drinking with colleagues and peers and let's call it normies, it was you know it was excruciating. You know you couldn't stand it. You couldn't stand there sipping a drink uh, normally, um, as opposed to guzzling it and getting to that desired effect as quickly as possible. So it was always tough. It was difficult, um, but you'd find ways. You know, you'd sneak off and have sneaky drinks in between your own shouts. And as I said, you know, you'd have a drink before going out and having a drink. Um, so yeah, it was uh, it was hard. Yep. Um, so Dean, relationships is another difficult side of uh, growing up. But drinking and growing up, how how do the relationships go with you? Uh, yeah, oh, not great. Yeah, to be honest, uh, I don't think I had much knowledge, and I certainly had no real idea in how to conduct them. And again, there's no blame, but I, you know, I, I temper of the times and, and my father. There was no. We talk about intimate relationships, but any relationships really for me, the the disease of addiction or alcoholism, self centeredness is a key part of that. So, you know, my my relationships. You know, they were either based on neediness or what I could get out of them or, you know, I don't think I ever really cared or wanted to really understand the other person as such. And that might be overly critical. There was times when, I, you know, I, I would be more invested. But um, really the, the, the drink or the drug right up until I got sober was paramount. So, you know, even friendships I would be, you know, reasonably distant in, um, not invested and, and wouldn't work as much. I just don't think I had any great idea of what a real relationship was. I could do the surface thing. I've always been a a salesman and I can talk the talk, but I I just had no real grounding in what makes a friendship or, you know, what is an intimate relationship or how much you should give or... uh, And then when I was on the drink of the drugs, I I could love everyone, you know. I could have that artificial bond or that, you know, you could hug your friends and you could talk this. And I think that may have been part of the attraction as well. There was many many attractive parts of the of the drink for me and that was perhaps one of them as well a feeling of closeness closeness and i had that when i i morphed into ecstasy later on as well i believe as well so yeah yeah. okay thanks well listen we might take another break i'm talking with brad and dean and we're talking about recovery in alcoholics anonymous um so we've sort of got to the point where drinking's a normal part of life um Mm. things aren't going particularly smoothly but there uh, there's no cause for alarm so, we'll start with you, Brad. Uh, what's what's it like in your life, drinking, and trying to keep the rest of your life going? Uh, exhausting. Yeah, exhausting. I need, uh, need a drink. Yeah. Yeah, and and, and you know, just trying to manipulate to to have a drink. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I've got a I've got a wife at home and and two kids, and I've always worked in a role where it was very much autonomous. So, yeah, I could uh, I could do what I wanted to do. I could plan my day and, um, yeah, I could run my own race. Uh, naturally, it was sort of a sales uh, commission-based role, but, uh, you know, I was doing enough in, in two or three days to 
to sort of help me coast through the the remaining days. So, um, so yeah, I could uh, you know, so long lunches and and boozy lunches were and golf days and and uh, you know, early starts on the drink were were the norm with me. Um, and uh, yeah, trying to sort of appease the the family at home and sort of get home at a, a respectable hour and in a in a respectable condition, or trying to put that front on. Um, yeah, it was exhausting. And and in order to to drink the way you wanted to drink and to to um, you know to get that craving uh, satisfied, yeah, you needed to to lie and and be deceitful and and cheat and and in order to to please uh, everybody at home. Um, but, yeah, it, it was exhausting. Yeah. Did having a family increase your uh, yeah, your your need, I guess? Um, or was it just y- life? Yeah, you know what? It, I can easily sit here and say, yes, it did increase the need. Um, but, but as I've learned in the rooms of AA is, you know, this is a progressive disease. So my yep. drinking at the age of 18, 22 was vastly different to that of 38 and 42. You know, it was, uh, you know, it became instead of, you know, once a fortnight or once a weekend, it, it became, you know, three, four days a week now. And back then it was the bars and the clubs and, you know, always around mm. social environments and, and events, whereas, let's call it today, um, it was more around local pubs, footy, horse racing, backyard barbecues, um, no matter what it was, or you know, most of the time it was you know by myself sitting at a bar in a pub or sitting at home uh, in the backyard by myself or on the couch or um, so yeah it, it it got worse and and sort of to say you know it was the the family that uh, no it wasn't it was uh, you know I just I just wanted uh, and I craved that drink more often and and more of it. And yeah, as I said, the the drinking went from being socially acceptable at that age. You know, I thought that in my twenties I had that license to be a lunatic. Um, I didn't hold that same license when I was in my late thirties and yeah. a father of two and trying to hold down a, a family and a and a career and a job. Mm. Um, but tell uh, you, yeah, nothing stood in the way. I was able to manipulate any situation, any uh, scenario. To uh, to fit in a drink, okay. Um, so how about you, Dean? Um, drinking was a daily activity. No, for me, I was always a, a binge drinker. Yeah, okay. I was. I was very much. I, I would binge and a weekend partier, and but in the end of the day, they couldn't. I couldn't stop. You know, they, they used to be Saturday night into Sunday, and then that would extend Saturdays and then it became at the end it would be around the clock until my body had to physically physically stop so um yeah it was you know didn't know whether it was day or night it was real you know blackout sort of bender binge drinking at the end and yeah, not pleasant yep so ha- how do you keep that going it must be very difficult yeah we, we you don't physically the body has to stop at some stage it has to detox you know uh, in whatever sense it can alcohol is, is is a powerful drug you know and the body rejects it and i was just, i remember going into a detox on the gold coast and the heroin addicts being amazed about how physically or you know unwell i was and how it manifested and um yeah it was just like i had to to stop you know and then um and then hospitalizations came into it towards the end and that's 
that's often the progression for an alcoholic is that you know you can kind of manage it on your own and it just gets worse and worse and worse and in the end it was nightmarish really yeah yeah okay so what happened to cause you to break the cycle yeah i i People ask, you know, how did you find AA? And I, I still don't know to this day. I mean, I, it was a really dark time. I remember Rink calling um, Lifeline. I was living on the Gold Coast. It was the loneliest time of my life. And, you know, I believe in a higher power. I believe that, that there's something you know, steered me in that direction. I'd tried Camperol and Naltrexone and the, the medical solution. I'd tried counselling. Nothing had really worked. And um, I went to Alcoholics Anonymous and I went to a meeting and, there was just a glimmer of hope there, and I, I didn't get it for that. I drank for another year before I, I stayed sober. But um, I remember thinking there was definitely something here. It was just that to understand, and then I was introduced to the book and the literature and that it was that was a, a definite illness. There was definitely other people who'd gone through. And to see it written in black and white in what we call our big book, um, the, the book Alcoholics Anonymous was just... It was a real relief to to know that others had gone through this and had been going through it for a long time. Yeah, a long time. Yeah, yeah. it wasn't just a moral weakness. It was just a it was an illness. But I was responsible then for the for the recovery plan, which was outlined in the book as well. So, yeah. Yeah. so how did you how did you manage that? How did you manage to get into AA? To get into it, it was yeah. In the end, I think Brad said it. It got me. I, I after my last drink, two thousand one. I was, I was, I was just. I'd surrendered. I had to surrender, and I had been doing it. I don't think I totally believed. I had clinging on to maybe I could drink socially, and that just gets smashed out of you in the end. I knew that if I continued to drink, that death or jails or you know there was poor, really bad realities coming, and. Um, and it was just the people in Alcoholics Anonymous. The people rally around. They rallied around me. They rallied around my family. Um, they give you support. They pick you up for meetings, and and it, and it helps them stay sober. And hopefully, I do the same today. You know, with with sponsorship. And then I got a sponsor and worked through the program. And that was probably when it really changed. It was about you know the the drink and the drugs were the solution to to how I tackled life. So I had to find a different solution. I had to go through and have a look move away from blaming everyone else for my situation and have a look at what my part in all those things had been. And that was that was a real 360 change for me. Um, make amends for my behaviour, which we do in steps eight and nine, and then continue to take personal inventory and then help others, which was just a, a radical departure from the self-centred lifestyle that I'd led. And that's when I believed that I started to really, A, enjoy life and, and, be, and progress through life as well. Yeah. Mm. So did your family play a part in helping you get into AA? I did. I mean, I look back. Some of the, the some of the most prized. My, both my father and mother have pri- um, passed away, and my my some my, my most prized possessions are a little notebook. My dad wasn't incredibly literate. He was a, he was a salesman. He had a successful business, but you know, and it was him writing in it about rehabs and everything that he he investigated from country Victoria and his own sort of handwriting. I find it quite emotional talking about it, you know, and I. Mm-hmm. I and stuff that Mum had written in the diary at the time, and and they 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 were they were really trying, particularly in that last year, to find a solution. And um, you know, we tried all the rehabs and, and Alcoholics Anonymous, particularly the people from Hamilton, which was there was one meeting a week in Horsham, and my mum would drive me to Hamilton. You know, that was the sacrifice—an hour and fifteen yeah. minutes on a yeah. Thursday night—and they were fantastic with her. And um, yeah, so they, they were great, and it's good for me to remember how supportive they were. You know, so they they did everything that they could, and then when I got it, I think they were understandably 
you know, they'd seen me slip many times. But then as the one year guy came into two and three, I think they could see the change and understand that perhaps this was going to be something a bit... It is a day at a time, but they could see that there was more permanency attached to it. And I think yeah. they, they loved that. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So how did you go about getting back into work and sort of rehabilitating yourself in, in a life sense? Yeah, I, I mean, I'd um, I'd always been into fitness and 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 and, and gym and 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 for initially not for healthy reasons. Initially for that low self esteem and and it was going to change me and and that's part of the part of what I believe is the illness as well. But I was always more aligned to that and so over time it was all the lessons I got told in AA: sticking around, turning up, thinking about others, doing the work. I'd, I'd been in the public service before that, and I was the world's worst public servant. You know, I would just, <laughs> I just expected to get a wage, and I expected not to work, and and that, you know, it was all about me. You know, what's give me something more, and and that the transformation in recovery was, well, I have to go and and give something back and hang around, and over time, it's, you know, I've, I've worked in corporate health, and I've worked in a business development role in there, and. And now I have a variety of roles. I teach yoga and rehabs, as I spoke about before, and I have a corporate health company, and I go in and speak about men's health, and I speak... And a lot of that language is from my recovery, is about the connection and getting support, and the message is really warmly received by men. We're in the midst of an epidemic of male suicide. We're in the epidemic of men's health, some toxic masculinity, you know, um, the Me Too movement. It's challenging times to be a male, challenging times to be a, a person, really, and... Um, so I'm able to do something I think that's a little bit more worthwhile rather than, you know, that's been a blessing that recovery's given me that I can I can find industries and things like Brad spoke about that more resonate with me. I don't have to just take anything, you know. So yeah. it's great. Okay, thanks. Uh, well, back to you then, Brad. Dean was talking basically about gratitude. So mm. what's the role of gratitude in AA? Yeah, it's... Uh it's another key in in order for for you to be able to live that that peaceful um, life full of serenity. I um, I do a gratitude list every night. Now that may have three things on it, may have thirteen on it, but uh, you know they could sort of vary in um, I guess impact on my day from a from a warmer day to 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 lots of things. Um, but yeah, being grateful for for what I have. Um, today rather than you know, being ungrateful for for what i don 't have sort of thing is is key yeah, yeah. Uh, for that for that inner peace you know i I live a life today um, uh, that that has shown me um, that i you know, i don 't need the drink i don 't need the drink in order to to live a happy and healthy life and and for me to to sit here and you know be full of gratitude for that um yeah, it, it, it sounds simple, but yeah, being grateful for the little things um, is what keeps me uh, keeps me sober. Um, and as I said, it's uh, it's what gives me that inner peace um, and serenity that I've seeked. Um, so yeah, okay. it's uh, yeah, being grateful is uh, is certainly one of the keys to to my uh, preserving my sobriety. Okay, thank you, um, Dean. Talking about um, alcoholics who are still drinking, mm. so what, what's AA's or <clears throat> what's the fellowship's view of alcoholics who still drink? Yeah, well, yeah we're here to support and I think the message is, is that uh, it's, it's always available. I mean, it's readily available online. Have a look, meetings um, to anyone that helps. You know, we, we have no 
the beauty of AA, it's very crystal clear. We have no interest in outside issues besides one alcoholic trying to help another to get sober. That's our sole purpose. You know, we're not invested in anything else. We have no opinion on outside issues, but uh, we will move heaven and earth to help someone who's drinking and thinks it's a problem. And, um, you know, we have... You know, I've got a strong home group and, and we, there's lots of great meetings in Melbourne and, and all across Australia. People come in and uh, we're there to, to help. You know, If you think your drinking's causing you problems and, and, and you want to have a look, you know, always suggest is come, and, come to a meeting, chat to some people. Uh, you know, It's not a cult. There's no conversion or anything. You can come and go as you please. There's no cost. It's just about other people who've been through the similar situation like I spoke about to help others, you know, and that's how we stay sober and that's how the message gets passed on. Okay, mm. thanks. Um, yeah, if you're interested in finding out more about Alcoholics Anonymous, you can phone them on 1300 222 or you can go online at aa.org.au. Uh, that's about all we've got time for today. Um, I'd like to thank Brad and Dean for coming in to the 3CR studio today and sharing their Alcoholics Anonymous recovery experience with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Bill. Great. Uh, I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll be talking about recovering from drug addiction and we'll be joined by Joey from Narcotics Anonymous. Stay tuned now to Black Noise Radio, hosted by Kerry Lee and featuring black news and views, current affairs, music, sport, culture and the arts, all from an Aboriginal woman's perspective. Thanks for listening to the Living Free program today.